morning's sermon text and turn to Exodus chapter 9. In God's providence, this is the first time I've been able to be with you on Lord's Day morning preaching from Exodus in a month, and so I'm very eager to get back into the Bible's second book. Uh, So eager, in fact, that we have a very long text to deal with today, chapter 7, verse 8, through chapter 10, verse 29, essentially four whole chapters we want to look at along the way with the first nine plagues that God sends upon Pharaoh and Egypt, and I hope it will soon become clear enough why we're taking such a large text this morning. Uh, What I want to do as we get going to help us see the truth of our passage, I want to read what is the seventh plague, this heavenly horrifying hailstorm that falls from heaven, chapter 9, verse 13 through 35. And part of the reason I want to read that plague is not only does it give you the pattern of how all the plagues seem to go, but also, kids, I want you to see if you can notice in this plague what God says are the purpose of all the plagues. What's the purpose of God sending these threatening judgments upon Pharaoh and Egypt? So let me read those verses for us. Then pray for our time and and we'll begin. So let us hear now as God speaks to us uh, once again through His Word. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning, present yourself before Pharaoh, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself, and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put my hand out and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people, and will not let them go, behold... About this time tomorrow I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never been seen in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now therefore send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter, for every man and beast that is in the field that is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord... Among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. And then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt on man and beast, and every plant in the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire ran down to the earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the fields in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field, only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. And then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. 
And Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. The flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear, and flax was in the bud. But the wheat and the emmer were not struck down, for they are late in coming up. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hands to the Lord. And the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Father, we ask that you would help us to know you as you are found in this great text. That we would hear with eagerness, that we would repent with earnestness. Let not our heart be hardened like the heart of Pharaoh. Give us one Soul that is soft to your word, that is ready to follow, ready to love and obey. Let us hear as people who are dying the warnings of this text. Let me preach even as a man who is dying, as one who knows the warnings of this text. Lord, do good to us, we pray, that we might grow in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I came across a book recently that was titled The The Secret History of Magic. It's written by two men, two scholars that wanted to uncover what they called the true story of the deceptive art. So if you've ever read anything, which I imagine uh, most of you probably haven't, and that's okay, uh, a popular common book on the history of magic. What you would tend to find in a popular common book on the history of magic is an ancient Egyptian sorcerer by the name of Jedi. You'll, you'll encounter this ancient conjurer. Because the popular common histories of magic uh, would tell you that it was Jedi who performed humanity's first magic trick. When one day, very, very long ago, he was in the courts of Pharaoh and he took a dead goose. And he made that dead goose live once again. And the authors of this recent book... Uh, basically tried to debunk that myth by saying it was, you know, it was little more than bunk. And they said the true story of humanity's first magic trick was indeed found in Pharaoh's ancient throne room. But it wasn't an ancient Egyptian conjurer. It was two ancient Hebrew conjurers, one named Moses and one named Aaron. As they took a staff and threw it to the ground, and watched it become a snake. And that's where our text begins today, with the prelude to these great nine plagues. And what you need to see, what we want to see as we come to this text, is is not just the fact that many people have thought this is a text of magic, but this is really, truly, isn't it a text of mystery? It's a text of majesty. We want to come to this text, not with the eyes of unbelief, but... The eyes of belief, we come not to this text to see sorcery, but divine reliability. 
And when you get to this point in the story of Exodus, and you watch nine plagues building up, heaping judgment upon Exodus, you, you can rightly say Pharaoh asked for it. He genuinely asked for it. You might remember back in chapter 5, verse 2, after Moses and Aaron come to Pharaoh for the first time and says, we've met with Yahweh, and he has said, let my people go. Do you remember what Pharaoh asked in response? Surely it wasn't a tone of ignorance, it was more of arrogance. He said, who is the Lord? Who is Yahweh that I should listen to Him and let His people go? Put maybe in more popular terms for us today, it was something akin to him saying, who is this God of the slaves that would deem to command me, the greatest living deity in all the earth, the king, Pharaoh, a living God in Egypt? And so Pharaoh's asked for it, what we get today. These nine plagues that are meant to build up on Pharaoh's heart in such a way that he relents and repents. If you know the story, he doesn't. And the reason that I want us to take all of these first nine plagues into one sermon is largely because every single plague follows the same pattern. It's the announcement of the plague, then the accomplishment of the plague. Every single plague virtually has the expressed, stated, central purpose of that you may know that I am the Lord. That's why the plagues are falling. You might glance back at what we just read. Kids, I hope you're able to see that purpose statement. If you glance back to chapter 9, verse 14, God says, For this time I'm going to send the plagues on you yourself, on your heart. Pharaoh is what he is really saying, and on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. So instead of letting us spend the next nine weeks with the same sermon, that's got the same pattern, with the same main point, we're going to take all nine plagues in one sermon this morning that you might see collectively and cumulatively this great main point. Know that the Lord is God. And it's true, when you study the Bible, sometimes it's good, isn't it? To study it in a granular way. You might analyze one phrase or, or one verse. Other times, it's good to take a sentence or perhaps a couple of paragraphs. Even other times, it's good, like we're doing this morning, to take a couple of chapters you know, to borrow an older metaphor, sometimes you want to walk into the forest, if you will. You want to stare and study just one leaf. Or you might want to stare and study one branch or stare and study one tree. Or sometimes it's good to stare and study the entire forest. And so as we stare and study what is the entire forest that I'm calling Then the Plagues Came, I want to walk through the plagues in three movements. So I'm going to go through them three different times, if you will. First of all, I want to notice... Nine plagues. Secondly, one hard heart. Thirdly, one true God. So kids, it's something like a spiritual 9-1-1 this morning. Nine plagues, one hard heart, and one true God. And I think you'll see why by the end of the text, it genuinely ought to be for all of us something like a spiritual 9-1-1. Because what you're going to see along the way, if you just kind of want to extend out that 9-1-1 idea, nine plagues fall on one hard heart, that he might know the one true God. And you could be in here this morning, couldn't you? And you, like Pharaoh, don't really understand the degree to which your heart is hardened to the Lord. And God in His kindness is giving you nine demonstrations of His power that they might summarily lead you to recognize that there is but one true God. 
The nine plagues actually begin with the prelude where we left off last week. If you glance back to chapter 7, verse 8, we find 80-year-old Moses, 83-year-old Aaron. These two brothers are in Pharaoh's court. You'll see in verse 9 of chapter 7 that Pharaoh says to them, Prove yourselves by working a miracle. All right? Show us why we should pay attention to what you are saying, Moses. So what they do is what God told them to do. They take their staff, they throw it to the ground, it becomes a snake. But then Pharaoh's magicians, his ancient conjurers, they take their staffs and they throw them to the ground and they too, kids, become snakes. But the reason why this is the prelude to the plagues is because of what we're told in verse 12 and 13. Look at what we see at the end of verse 12. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as Yahweh had said. So the reason it's the prelude to the plagues is because God has already demonstrated that he will defeat Pharaoh. His snake swallows the others. But does this lead Pharaoh to repent? Pharaoh to relent? No, he just hardens his heart and doesn't listen. And God said this is exactly how it was going to go. And so that pattern is now going to work its way out in nine different plagues, in nine different terrors that fall upon the land of Egypt. Plague number one is water being turned to blood. Notice verse 17. Maybe the next day, perhaps within just a few days, what we're told, Yahweh says through Moses, By this you shall know, Pharaoh, that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn to blood. And if you glance down the next few verses, God essentially commands Aaron, take the staff and stretch it out over the land. And it's not just the Nile that's going to turn into blood, it's all of the water in the land is going to turn to blood. Every lake, every pond, every stream, every river, every tributary is going to turn into blood, such as the first plague upon Egypt. And of course, it happens, skip down to verse twenty. Through 21, Moses and Aaron did as God commanded. They lifted up the staff. They struck the water of the Nile. And all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died. And the Nile stank. So that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. If you know about the importance of the Nile, which we'll come back to at the end of the sermon, you know why this first plague ought to have been so stunning to Pharaoh. But if you just glance down the next few verses... His ancient conjurers, they, they too prove they can turn water into blood. So Pharaoh, by this point, is not terribly impressed, is he? Well, that doesn't seem terribly powerful, Moses and Aaron. My magicians can do the next same thing. Just get on and go back to where you came from. So God sends plague number two. You see in chapter 8, as it begins, this plague of frogs. Look at verse 3 and 4. God says through Moses once again, The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come upon you and your people and all your servants. Now what you're going to want to see throughout these plagues is the totality language used in each one. On all of Egypt, on all the servants, on all the people. And you want to recognize right from the outset, when God's judgment comes upon a person, when God's judgment comes upon a people, it always is a total judgment. There is nothing that will go left untouched when God comes in judgment. So kids, picture the scene. Maybe you wake up the next morning. 
You hear lots of ribbits out in the backyard. Perhaps you live near the Nile River. What a horrifying sight it must have been to see, as it were, the Nile like a mouth opening and from that very mouth pouring nothing but a swarm of frogs beginning to enter into everything in everyone's household. The Pharaoh himself says, this is too much. You'll see as the text continues in verse 8 and following, he says, plead with the Lord and take away the frogs and I will let you go sacrifice to Yahweh. And interestingly enough, Moses says, yeah, sure, I'll pray for you. What time do you want me to take away the frogs? And Pharaoh says, tomorrow works for me. And Moses says, tomorrow works for me too. So the next day he prays, the Lord takes away the frogs. But Pharaoh, not for the first time, goes back on his promise to let God's people go. And he continues to act in unrepentance. So plague three comes, you'll see. Next, in verse 16 through 19, the plague of gnats. God tells Aaron, take your staff and strike the ground, strike the dust of the earth, and it will rise up like gnats. And those gnats proceed to pour forth and cover everything and everyone. But interestingly enough, this third plague finds Pharaoh's magicians unable to replicate it. You see verse 18 and 19, the magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. And then the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Pharaoh's servants are beginning to notice already by the third plague that there is something different about this God. But Pharaoh won't have anything to do with that. He's still full of unbelief and unrepentance. So the fourth plague comes, which is the plague of flies. I don't know if your house is anything like ours, but it seems like sometimes throughout the year you have these random seasons where the flies have discovered a secret entryway into your household. And you just don't know why they suddenly have got in, and you don't know how quickly or why you can't quickly get them out. And we had that happen in our house uh, two weeks back. Maybe it's because it seemed to go from hot, I'm sorry, relatively cool to relatively warm pretty quickly while my parents were over and they were more than a number of flies kind of in our normal eating area. And our almost six-year-old Knox, he loves to, to kill the flies. He fancies himself and is quite good as, as a fly swatter. And so he wanted to prove his, you know, fly swatting prowess to my parents. And so immediately as we were getting ready for lunch, he picked up his favorite fly swatter and got to work. And within a few minutes' notice, there was nine dead flies or so uh, there on the floor. But there was enough more in the room that he was pretty much wanting to give up by that point. You know, to kill 12 in 10 minutes was too much for Knox. And I don't know if you've ever experienced something like that, the difficulty and the annoyance of flies that won't leave you alone. How much worse would it be if there were so many flies in the land, there were so many flies in your house, so many flies around you that it was almost as though you were wearing flies for clothing. And that's exactly, isn't it, what comes in the fourth plague? Skip down to verse 24 of chapter 8. There came great swarms of flies into the houses of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses throughout all the land of Egypt. The land was ruined by swarms of flies. This time Pharaoh goes a little further. Pray for God to remove the flies and I'll let you go and sacrifice within the land. You know, 
have to stay in Egypt, but at least you get to worship your God. Moses says, no, we must leave the land to sacrifice. Moses prays for the flies to be removed. You'll notice in verse 30, the Lord removes the flies once again, and once again, Pharaoh reneges on his promise. And so we come to the fifth plague, which is the death of the livestock in Egypt. It's simply put, notice verse 6 of chapter 9, the next day, all the livestock of the Egyptians died. And still Pharaoh will not relent and repent. Thus comes the sixth plague, the plague of boils. Look at verse 8 and 9 of chapter 9. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln, and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. And it shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt, and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So kids, you want to picture Moses and Aaron going to wherever maybe the palace kiln was. Think something like, you know, a great oven, a fireplace, and they reach in there. Clearly it was cold enough to do this. And gathering there the ashes and whatnot, and they take them before Pharaoh's eyes, and they throw it up into the air. And then boils begin to break out on animals and people and magicians. Notice verse 11. The magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came up upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. And still Pharaoh doesn't relent or repent. And it's just striking here. You have these magicians. It seems like throughout all of the plagues, what they're doing in the background, sometimes we're told about it, sometimes we're not, is that they're trying to replicate this plague from Yahweh in order to underscore for Pharaoh that Yahweh really isn't that big of a deal. But here, in the sixth plague, they are rendered completely unable to even do anything about the boils because they can't stand up, the text says, is before Pharaoh. And isn't that always what happens when people continually and relentlessly oppose God, continually and relentlessly try to falsify God's truth, that He will, in His own providence, in His own timing, and certainly in His own severity of judgment, He will render them completely incapacitated Utterly helpless and totally powerless. But a seventh plague is necessary, isn't it now? The one that we read at the beginning, there in the rest of chapter 9, the plague of hail. Look again at what God says more strongly to Pharaoh in verse 17 and 18. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. You pause right there. You're, you're not submitting to me. Why? Because, Pharaoh, you don't think you have to. And I'm going to make you learn. You have to. I hope some of you know it's a dangerous thing when you continue to refuse to submit to God. Because in some time, soon or in the future, He will make you learn you have to. And you can do that one day unto your own judgment or even now unto your own good. But Pharaoh, of course, will not relent to repent. Look at verse 18. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never been seen in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Pharaoh doesn't have any interest in listening to God's word. Strikingly enough, some of his people, you notice in verse 20, uh, they did fear the word of the Lord and got their animals, their livestock, their family and servants safe, but many didn't give attention to God's word. 
It's a dangerous thing when you don't listen to God's word, as Pharaoh continually doesn't. So look at verse 23. The imagery is quite striking in verse 23 as this plague falls upon Egypt. Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire ran down to the earth. Like children will run down the driveway to greet an ice cream truck. So are fire, hail, and rain running down heaven's driveway to greet Egypt. And what a horrifying thought it is if you continue on through the next few verses. Again, the totality of language is everything is dying. Everything is perishing. And Pharaoh, you see in verse 27, it seems like God has brought him to the point of repentance, right? He says, this time I've sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and the people are wrong. Again, Moses, pray for the hail to be gone, and we'll let you go out of the land. And Moses says, I'll pray for you. Moses knows, though, doesn't he? Verse 30, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. And so, Pharaoh once again finds the plague lifted, and once again, his promise itself is lifted And he refuses to repent or relent. So plague number 8 comes at the beginning of chapter 10, the plague of locusts. Look at verses 4 through 6. If you refuse to let my people go, God says, Behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country, and they shall cover the face of the land so that no one shall see the land. And they shall eat what is left to you after the hail, And they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field. And they shall fill your houses and houses of all your servants and all the Egyptians. As neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from this day they came on the earth in the plague of locusts. So kids, picture the scene. What God has just said. I'm going to send so many locusts that if you were to look out across the backyard. If you were to look out across the country acre, if you were to look out across the highway, you would not see one blade of grass, you would not see one speck of dirt, you will not see one place of cement. It looks as though you're living in the land of the locust. So many locusts will there be. And by this time, Pharaoh's servants have understood something more of the truth, it seems like, than Pharaoh. Certainly receive something of a moral courage in order to stand up to Pharaoh. Because look at what they say in verse 7. How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? Come back to that in a minute when we think about one hard heart. So they had said, here's the plague that's coming. You see at the end of verse 6, they they left the room. The servants come and they warn Pharaoh and they say, hey, call Moses and Aaron to come back. So they call Moses and Aaron to come back. And if you scan your eyes through that ensuing conversation, essentially what Pharaoh says is, okay, who are you going to take with you when you go worship the Lord? And Moses said, we're taking everybody, you know, women, children, men too. And Pharaoh says, you know, you're up to no good. You can only take the men. And so, Moses and Aaron leave. The plague falls. Notice verse 15. They covered the face of the whole land, so the land was darkened. 
And they ate all the plants and all the fruit in the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained. Again, Moses prays. Again, the plague is lifted. And again, Pharaoh doesn't repent or relent. Finally, the plague of darkness ends our text at the end of chapter 10. Kids, I wonder if some of you have a nightlight in your room. Maybe a nightlight in your bathroom. Nightlight in your hallway. Uh, we recently went on a vacation and we were staying at this house that had nightlights everywhere. Every room, every hallway, every nook and cranny seemed to be lit up with the glow at night of these nightlights. Because, you know, you understand it's a house you've never really been in before and few things might be more difficult or more dangerous than trying to navigate a place you don't know in the midst of the darkness. Even at our house, just earlier this week, we were talking with two of our younger children about how scared they were of going to bed at night because, Daddy, it's so dark. And what you see here is that it's one thing to see darkness. It's another thing to feel darkness. It's another thing, I mean, it's one thing to see nothing. It's another thing to feel the oppressive weight of nothingness. For look at what we're told What God says to Moses in verse 21, Stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt. A darkness to be felt. Now what you need to see in part what God is doing here in these nine plagues is the exact opposite of what He did in the early pages of the first book of the Bible. You remember there it was from nothing, from darkness that He created everything. And now, here in the Bible's second book, he's taking everything and turning it into nothing. He's turning it into darkness. This is a divine act of decreation, bringing chaos into the Egyptians' cherished order. And again, Pharaoh says, okay, we need to do something about this. Moses, I'll let you take all the men, all the women, and all the children to worship Yahweh, but you can't take the animals. Well, Moses says, we don't know what... Yahweh is going to require of us when we get to the land. We might need the animals for a sacrifice. And so Pharaoh erupts. And the cold, callous nature of his heart. Look at verse 28 through 29 where our text ends. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on that day you see my face, you shall die. And Moses said, As you say, I will not. See your face again. And as we begin to move from the nine plagues to the one hard heart, you need to notice that verse 28 and 29 of chapter 10 is the true tragedy of the text. You have a man so vividly confronted with God's power, with God's strength, with God's authority, with God's ability, and yet his heart is so hard that not only does he not turn or he doesn't turn and trust in the Lord, that he doesn't relent and repent of his sin, that he kicks out God's mediator from his presence. The only one that actually could bring him into God's presence, he says, away with you, Moses. If I see you again, you will die. It's a terrifying thing, isn't it? To be in a situation maybe like Pharaoh. Some of you have this one hard heart. You've grown up in the church. You've heard the gospel preached, partaken of the Lord's Supper over and over. 
And just as Pharaoh sees the Lord's power over and over, you're dangerously close to the point where not only won't you relent and repent, you just refuse to be done with Jesus Christ altogether. And to get to that place is to get to the place of no return. For the Bible says that there is a time coming when you can get to a place of no return. That you can so refuse the Lord Jesus Christ, you can so refuse God's chosen mediator that he will walk out of your presence never to see your face again in anything but judgment. This is the true danger of the one hard heart. Because as you pass through, going back to chapter 7, from these nine plagues to the one hard heart, if you just glance through, if your Bible's got good headings, it's very easy to pick it out. How each plague seems to end with the same refrain. Pharaoh's hardened heart refused to listen to the Lord. If you work your way later on this afternoon through all the texts, you can say three times that Pharaoh hardened his heart. Three times the text tells us that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. So students, sometimes when you get the passages like this, stories like this, you might want to ask the question, which one is it? Who truly hardened the heart? Was it Pharaoh or was it the Lord? And as you read the commentary from the apostles on this in Romans chapter 9, you, you see that the two aren't in conflict, however much a divine mystery that might be to our human sensibilities. The appropriate way to think about these things in the Bible is that Pharaoh freely chose what God had freely chosen he would do. And that divine mystery doesn't cause the Bible any problems. Certainly the true terror of this text is the degree to which a cold and calloused heart can refuse to come to the one true Lord. So we move from nine plagues and one hard heart to one true God. About 15 years ago, I found myself in rural Kansas for reasons that I could tell you about on a different day. I've never been there since and probably don't think I'll ever be back there again. And I was having dinner with this couple and as I was leaving their house that night to go to a different house later on in the evening, I asked them for directions how to get there. You know, 15 years ago, we didn't have things like GPS devices in every car or on, on every phone. And so I expected, because it, it wasn't that far away, you know, they would say, hey, just go down 44, and then eventually you'll want to take a right on Main Street. And at the stop sign, the first stop sign, take a left on the Hickory Grove, and then you'll find the house on the, on the right-hand side that you're looking for. But if you've ever been in these situations before, you might know, actually, that's not what came to me. It was language like this. Well, just head down the road until you see the tractor. And then turn right. And keep going until you see the green silo. And then turn left. And keep going until you see the big oak tree. Then turn right and look for the house with the blue door. And that's where you want to be. And it was very much directions by signs, wasn't it? You know, the signs will... We'll get you safely home. And that's exactly what's happening in our text today. We're meant to see signs that will lead you safely home if you see them aright. Because the plagues more properly, I know this is a clumsy way of saying it, the plagues more properly are portents. They're signs that are meant to communicate something of the one true God. So, what do these nine plagues, how would you answer this? What do these nine plagues tell us about the one true God? God. Let me close by mentioning four things. Number one, He is the sovereign God. 
He is the sovereign God. Again, you can glance through the plagues as they go along and Pharaoh's hardening his heart and he's not listening to the Lord and you get this common refrain, don't you? As the Lord had said. This was going exactly as God had decreed it would. This is going precisely how he knew it would. That sovereign God of the universe is never surprised by anything. That he's ordained everything from eternity past to bring it to its eternal purpose in the Lord Jesus Christ. Number one, he is the sovereign God. Number two, he is the supreme God. Because some of you might know this. Maybe you've heard a sermon on the plagues before. Maybe you've done a Bible study on the plagues before. But there is beyond the purpose that Pharaoh and Egypt and all of us would know the one true God who rules over and rules in all the earth. There is a purpose of divine mockery in every plague. What Yahweh is doing is singling out a specific God in Egypt to humiliate with that plague. And I'll just mention one because it's the easiest. The first plague, water gets turned into blood. You might know the affection, frankly even the worship that Egyptians had for the Nile River. They would talk about their land as the gift of the Nile. They believed the Nile was a goddess that they should worship as, quote, the giver of life. Yet what is the Nile compared to Yahweh? With the word, he turns this life-giving source into nothing more than a source and stench of death. He is the supreme God in all the universe. Whatever false gods you might bow to, whatever idols you might carry, recognize their end is the end of these gods in Egypt. Utter humiliation before the one true God. He is the sovereign God. He is the supreme God. Number three, he smites his enemies. He smites his enemies. There is a time coming, isn't there, that Pharaoh is going to experience the full wrath and fury of God's judgment for his unrepentance. There is a time coming, if you're in here today, if you, like Pharaoh, continue with a hard heart that will not come to Jesus Christ. You will feel the full wrath and fury of God's judgment upon your sin. Strikingly, if you're with us in the evening and you you make it a few more months and we get a few more months into the future, we're eventually going to see how a number of these plagues are repeated in the book of Revelation. That when Jesus comes in His judgment, He brings this plague-like power with Him. He smites His enemies. You know, I read an article recently that was talking about COVID and Thanksgiving and various states that are essentially banning people from gathering of a certain number and on Thanksgiving holiday. And the article ended in a striking way, striking to me at least. It ended with this sentence facing many Americans today about Thanksgiving is the most consequential decision they will ever make. And some of you are harumphing and laughing. Because you should. That is the most consequential decision you will ever make. What is much more consequential than recognizing the full justice and judgment of God that belongs upon sinners' heads. That He will smite His enemies. He is the sovereign God. Supreme God. He will smite His enemies. And number four, the good news, He saves His people. He saves His people. You know, if you look through these 
plagues, there's a number of them. We can't mention all of them, of course. If you look through, just even turn back to the fifth plague, what you get with the livestock is God is separating his people from the Egyptians in these plagues. It happens, doesn't it, in various places, but it was all of the Egyptians' livestock that died, and it was all of the livestock of Israel that lived. And even when the plagues came with the hail, the seventh plague, you notice as we read in chapter 9, verse 26, only in the land of Goshen where the people of Israel were, there was no hail. God was saving his people. So what was a sign of judgment to Pharaoh was a sign of salvation to Israel. Pharaoh got nine signs, and he's going to get a tenth, isn't he? He got so many signs and never repented or relented. Do you know that the Lord has given you even a greater sign than these plagues? Jesus came and was speaking with the religious leaders one day, and he was, frankly, mocking them in certain ways because of their desire, these Jewish religious leaders, to see a sign. And he said, you're only going to get one sign, which is the sign of a resurrected Savior. Because is it not in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that very sign that you see God's power most perfectly revealed before all the nations? God's truth revealed before every watching eye and listening ear. Moses was God's mediator, powerful only to send the plagues as a sign. Jesus is the true and greater mediator powerful enough to take the plagues into his very heart as the sign for sinners like you and me, the degree to which he has love and compassion on weak, weary, stubborn, hard-hearted people. I wonder if you've turned from your sin, seen this sign and trusted in Jesus Christ. He is the sovereign God. He is the supreme God. He will one day smite his enemies. But the good news is today... He continues to save His people. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we do ask that You would help us in the midst of our stubbornness, in the midst of our sin, to listen to Your Word, to heed Your warnings, to see the sign of salvation that is ours in Jesus Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let us stand as we respond to God's word, rejoicing in that good news that we do have a mediator. We do have a great high priest. And his name is Jesus, the risen Christ.